Okay, yeah. Um, thankful to be back with you guys. Um, thankful to be back preaching. Uh, you just have to endure this Sunday, then Mike will be back. And everything will be right again. And so, but I really am thankful for this time that uh, I have just to um, just preach um, and just study the Word of God and present it to you guys. Uh, just thank you for your patience as I do that. Uh, and so we're continuing our study in Luke today, uh, looking at the heart of God uh, for his people. And last week, Luke introduced us to the Pharisees. So they came on the scene when Jesus healed the paralytic. And just a, like a little background on the Pharisees, we talked about them last week. Um, they're a very influential group at this time, uh, during the time of Jesus. And really, they distinguished distinguish themselves in society by their strict observance um, of the Old Testament law. And they really used it almost as a prideful badge of honor and distinguish, distinguishing themselves. Um, and they were kind of like, they had the say on everything in the Jewish community. And so really what we see here is Jesus challenging that. So we saw it last week in Luke 5 when the Pharisees uh, challenged him after he forgives sins. And we're going to see it more this week as Jesus encounters uh, the Pharisees and they challenge him. And so as we look at our text today, we actually we have a lot to cover. So we're going through, we're starting in chapter 5, verse 27, and we're going to chapter 6, verse 11. So we're covering four stories of Jesus. And there's a lot in here, but I really, I just want to focus on three aspects of this new kingdom that Jesus is building um, throughout Luke, that Luke presents to us. Three aspects showing us the people of Jesus, the celebration of Jesus, and then the lordship of Jesus. So people, celebration, and lordship. Those are the aspects of the kingdom that we're going to look at today that Jesus is bringing. And in each of these interactions, like I said, uh, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees, right? They're coming into conflict with each other. And as, I think as we go through these texts, uh, really we're going to be challenged as well. When we look at these texts and we see uh, the claims that Jesus is making, so I think our hearts will be challenged. But even more so, I think our hearts are going to be encouraged as we really see who Jesus is as he reveals himself to us. So I'll go ahead and read our first text for a section, which is Luke 5, verses 27 through 32. And we're going to see the kind of people that Jesus calls. So Luke 5, 27 through 32. <clears throat> After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." So just some background on tax collectors. Um, they were not popular people during this time. Really, uh, they were viewed as, uh, they, they worked for the Roman government who was actually oppressing the Jews at this time. The, the Roman government, they were ruling over the people of God, um, ethnic Israel at this time. And so tax collectors in general didn't have a great reputation. But even more than that, a Jewish tax collector would have an even worse reputation because his kinsmen, his people, they would view him as a traitor because not only was he taking taxes from them, giving them to the Roman government, he's also just one of their own, giving, these, uh, giving this money to the Roman government, and he was stealing more money than he was required um, to take for their taxes. 
they're, they're notorious for taking more money and keeping it for themselves. And so they're viewed as traders that were making, a, making themselves wealthy uh, off of the profit of their countrymen. So really not a high opinion at all of these people. So you can see why they were not popular. And the Pharisees, they even looped them in with sinners, as we see in our text, and the tax collectors and sinners. That's how low um, they would view the Pharisee, or view the tax collectors during this time. And so they wouldn't, even, they wouldn't even comprehend that Jesus, this teacher of the law, this righteous person, would associate with tax collectors and with sinners. Right? They, wouldn't, they, wouldn't, uh, they would be out, outraged at this. They would be confused by it. And they are, as we see. They ask, you know, why do you eat? with these tax collectors and these sinners. Because um, in those times, shared meals actually meant more than they mean, to, uh, mean today. So shared meals, they really meant shared lives with each other. And so when the Pharisees, when they see Jesus eating with these tax, tax collectors and with these sinners, uh, they see Jesus opening up his life to them. And in the Pharisees' mind, if they did that, they would become unclean. Because really, they viewed the community of God as something that you had to earn your way into. The Pharisees, they viewed strict Sabbath observance, right? strict observance of the law, obedience to the law. Um, those were the qualifiers for entering into the kingdom of God and making yourself righteous. And so when they see Jesus associating with tax collectors and sinners, they see Jesus defiling himself. Like we talked about with the leper. Um, when they see Jesus associating with those who are unclean, they're worried that Jesus will become unclean. But Jesus, he's, he's going to reverse this. He's going to turn it around. Because this is where Jesus, he challenges the Pharisees. So he shatters their idea of what being in the people of God actually means. So like I said, in their mind, when they see Jesus associating with these sinners, they see him defiling himself. But Jesus, he reverses this, and he says, no, I'm not bringing defilement to myself. I'm bringing clean, cleanliness to these people. I'm bringing healing to these people. And so, like I said, this wouldn't, this wouldn't fit well with the Pharisees who think um, you have to keep yourself pure, keep yourself removed uh, from people who may keep you dirty or who may dirty you, may defile you, may make you unholy um, because they had the strict observance of the law. And just to clarify, the law actually wasn't the problem. So the law that God gives to his people was good. The law that God gave through the Old Testament was good. But they had twisted the law and, to make it a badge of honor. So take pride in themselves. And this is what Jesus means when he says they're righteous. He doesn't mean like they actually are righteous. It's almost with air quotes where Jesus says they're righteous. Uh, he means they consider themselves the righteous. They consider themselves healthy. Um, they, don't, they don't understand that they need forgiveness. They don't understand that they're sick and that they need a doctor to come and heal them. And they don't understand that they actually have the same need that this tax collector has for forgiveness. And this is where Jesus turns up, upside down. He says, I haven't come for those who take pride in themselves. I haven't come to call the righteous who think that they don't need to repent. I've come, I've come to call those who are sinners, those who know that they are sick, they know that they need a doctor, um, and they have a terrible reputation. Right? They have a terrible reputation. Uh, they're known as sinners. These are the people that Jesus is seeking here. Jesus says, I'm not defiling myself by associating with them. I'm cleansing them. I'm bringing the kingdom of God to them rather than excluding them from the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, bringing in this new age, he turns this, uh, this, uh, these qualifications for the kingdom of God on their head. He says, my people, they will be sinners. They will be tax collectors in need of righteousness. 
those who are low, right, those who are poor in spirit, these are the people that I'm coming for. These are the people that Jesus came to seek and to save, and we actually are those people, right? We are the tax collectors. We are the sinners that Jesus has sought out and saved. And on the one hand, this is offensive to us. Right off the bat, this is offensive to us, just like it was offensive to the Pharisees uh, to be charged with this, right? Um, it's offensive. I just want you to imagine that you're playing, say you're about to play a game of dodgeball. If everyone go back to like junior high and everyone's waiting to be picked by two team captains. And let's say that you get picked first for a team. You get picked first and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Like, yeah, I have a pretty good arm. I understand why you picked me. Uh, then you go up to the captain and he says, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't pick you because you were good. I picked you because you're so bad at dodgeball that I wanted to protect you from the other team. That's going to sting a little bit at first. You're like, oh, that's embarrassing, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of hurt um, when we first hear that. Uh, and it kind of hurts us if we have an inflated view of ourselves. When we view ourselves as righteous, it kind of stings when we realize that we're called into the kingdom of God solely, on the, solely based on the grace of God. Right? We're sinners called in, not because of anything that we have done, um, just because we need Jesus. Like, that's the reason that we've been called in, out of God's grace and out of his love for us. Um, and so it's challenging at first, but it's actually very encouraging to us when we consider what this means. So if we take an honest, deep look at ourselves, we see that we really are the sick. We see that we really are the sinners, and we see how desperately we need Jesus to come in and to save us. And so it's encouraging because we look at ourselves, we see how desperate we are, but when we, when we look at Jesus, we, have, we see how dedicated he is to come and save us. Uh, really, Jesus states his mission here. He says his very mission is to seek and save uh, sinners. He's come to call sinners to repentance, not the righteous. And when we consider this, it encourages us, and it should also encourage us in our community. And this should remove any obstacle that we have of a loving community of God. When we look around and we see people that were like us, that are brought in by the grace of God, we have a warm compassion for them. So we know it's not any of our works that bring us in, nothing that elevates ourselves above others. We see other people and we know that we are brought in on the same basis, that we were sinners in need of God's grace, and that we have been provided for by this grace of God. So we rejoice when we see another sinner come in and profess faith in God, when we see another sinner repent um, due to the grace of God. We rejoice. And we also enter into this fellowship with Jesus that the tax collectors and the sinners had. Right? We enter this shared meal where we share our lives with Jesus, and he shares his life with us. And so we're the tax collectors and the sinners. We're sharing our life with each other, and we're sharing a life that is centered on Jesus. So it really should encourage our hearts. Um, it really is great news. But also, that raises the question, uh, what does this life look like as those who have a life uh, centered on Jesus in need of his grace and fellowship with him? Right, what does this life look for us now that we are in this community that Jesus has called? And I think it looks like a life of celebration. If we go to our next, uh, next little section here, we see, we see celebration. So let's go ahead and read verses 33 through 39 in Luke 5 here. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while their bridegroom is with them? The days will come when their bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. 
He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says, the old is good. And so it's likely that the Pharisees initiated this comparison. Right? They may not have asked the question, but they initiated this comparison between the disciples of Jesus, those who are eating with them, and the Pharisees' disciples, and the disciples of John. Because once again, the Pharisees, they've twisted the law in their mind to be a badge of honor, like I said. They've twisted the law into where now fasting and prayer for them is really a symbol of how righteous they are. They're doing this to boost themselves up, boost, themselves, boost their self-righteousness up, and they're doing it to exclude others as well. They're saying, look, you know, look at me, look at my obedience and what I'm doing here. And Jesus, he, of course, rejects this type of fasting um, like we just talked about. He rejects any works that they commit to earn their own righteousness. Uh, but he also disregards the fasting of John's disciples at this time. And this is a little different because the fasting that John's disciples did, it was rooted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament view of fasting is one of mourning, and it's one really of longing and hoping for something that is yet to come. Uh, it had, yeah, it had this sense of mourning, this sense of dissatisfaction. And they were, they were fasting and they were praying because they were waiting for something to come. These, the disciples of John, they're waiting for the Messiah to come um, that is promised in the Old Testament. And that's why they're fasting. And what Jesus is saying to them is, there's no longer a need for that anymore because I'm here. Right? The Messiah has come and he is here and he's bringing in this new kingdom. And so it's inappropriate. It doesn't really make sense to fast and to pray for this coming Messiah when Jesus has shown up and he's arrived. He uses the imagery of a groom at a wedding feast to get this point across to them. He says, and so like sharing meals, weddings, they carried, they were more involved um, than just like a singular wedding day. Weddings actually lasted a whole week long. Uh, so seven days long of just uh, partying with your friends, enjoying, being, enjoying time with your friends, eating and drinking, uh, celebrating the wedding that you're at, uh, the bride and the groom. And so first of all, I think we should adopt this into our culture because seven days partying seems like a great time to me. Uh, so if you're getting married soon, just make that happen and invite me. Uh, but also, yeah, so they partied for seven days. And during this seven days, they didn't fast, right? It wouldn't make sense to fast um, and to go out and pray for long periods of time. It wouldn't make sense in this context because they're celebrating, right? They're celebrating that the groom is here, um, that the wedding is happening. And so it's this huge celebration. And so uh, Levi, my brother here, not the tax collector, uh, but my brother is here, and his, it's his birthday today. And so it would be weird for me to like go home and just eat ramen by myself right, on his birthday. It just wouldn't make sense because this is a time to celebrate. It's a time that he's here, um, that we can enjoy together and celebrate. And that's what Jesus is saying here and saying, look, I've come. I'm the Messiah, and I'm with you now. Right? We're feasting. We're enjoying this time that we have together um, because I'm bringing in this new age. It really is a celebration. Just as a wedding brings a new age for the couple, uh, Jesus coming brings in this new kingdom. He's overturning everything. But the problem for the Pharisees is that this new, this new age that Jesus is bringing, this new kingdom, it means the passing away of the old, the old that they were used to. And this is what Jesus is getting across with the two analogies he uses. 
He talks about a new garment, and he talks about the wine. Uh, really what he's saying here is he's comparing the old versus the new. So the new wine versus the old wine, or the new garment versus the old garment, and how they don't fit together, right? how it's even destructive to try and mix these things. And what he's saying here is that it doesn't make sense to follow the old traditions that the Pharisees have established of earning your own righteousness. Right? The old covenant it had a place, this law, it had a place for its time, but it's the new covenant is here. Right? This new time where righteousness is now given by Christ, not attained through your own self-effort. And so he's comparing the new and the old. He's saying the old is out of place now. It doesn't, it's not effective anymore. Jesus has fulfilled this law that you seek to earn your own righteousness from. And it's also the old ways are gone because Jesus is now here. There's no longer um, these practices of trying to bring him here, of longing and fasting for him. Uh, these are ineffective now because Jesus has arrived. and He's bringing in this age of redemption. And so this really is a cause for celebration. Because Christ, and it's a cause of celebration to us, because Christ, he has come to us, right? We have received him, and we know him now, and so it's a time of celebration. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, do, though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So though we have not seen Jesus, he has still come, and we still have the same joy that his disciples had at knowing him. He has made himself available to us through his word and through his spirit. We really do enjoy his presence. We really do um, enjoy the love that he has for us, the fellowship that he brings to us. And this challenges us, too, because we still have old ways, just like the Pharisees had old ways. We still have old ways of trying to maintain our status in this kingdom. Right? We know that maybe on an intellectual level, we know Jesus has brought us into the community through his grace, but we still practice our old ways of trying to earn our status here, right? of, of obeying God solely out of the purpose of maintaining our relationship with him, or we seek approval in other relationships, or seek approval in our jobs and our families, and we seek all these things, and these are old ways. Jesus, he said that, look, I have come, and I've given you full approval. I've fully, accept, I've fully accepted you. I've fully redeemed you. So it's a new age for us. It's a new age that we've entered into, um, we are the people of Jesus, gathering together to celebrate Jesus because he has come to us. But also, I think we need to look deeper into what the new age means for us now. Because Christ has also ascended, and we're also still waiting for him to come back. We're waiting for the second coming. So what does this mean that we do here on earth as we are waiting, as we are living together in this fellowship? And when we turn to this last little section of our text, I think it means that we're under the lordship of Jesus still. Really what Jesus highlights in this next section is that he is Lord over our lives. He has, brought, he has brought us into fellowship, we celebrate him, and he's Lord over our lives. And so we see this in Luke 6, 1 through 11. I'll go ahead and read um, this section. Luke 6, 1 through 11. On his Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. 
and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So we have two, uh, two stories that occur on the Sabbath here. Two stories that occur on the Sabbath. The first one, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6, the Pharisees, they accuse the disciples of Jesus for breaking, of breaking the Sabbath law, of working on the Sabbath. They accuse them of doing something unlawful. Um, because they viewed the disciples eating the heads of grain, they viewed that, or they interpreted the law in such a way um, where they said, look, you're harvesting on the Sabbath. You're working on the Sabbath now. And really, this is an overboard application of the law. Right? They, they, they take it to the extreme. They say, the disciples just like snacking on some grain means that they're harvesting now, means that they're working. And so they, they take it overboard, they exaggerate it. Um, but this example, it, again, it reveals how the Pharisees have twisted the law. They've twisted the law to make it into their own tradition. Right? Now they just have this tradition of where simply eating a little bit of grain on the Sabbath is interpreted as breaking the entire Sabbath. And so they've twisted the Sabbath from a day of rest actually into a day of their own pride, a pride where they can look and say, look, I observe, I observe all these regulations on the Sabbath. I do everything right on the Sabbath. And they build themselves up with this, build up their pride. And the irony is that they've actually turned the Sabbath day, which is supposed to be one of rest, one of enjoyment, they've turned it into a day of work where you have to worry about all the regulations that are now in place. You have to worry, you know, can I do this on the Sabbath? Can I not do this on the Sabbath? And so they've twisted the law back into self-promotion, back into a bunch of rules. But Jesus is coming, and he's bringing a new kingdom. And he says, I'm bringing new rules. You guys have interpreted the law in such a way to build up your own tradition. He's saying, look, I'm tearing all that down. And I'm bringing new rules and a new way of life in this new kingdom. And this is why he mentions the story of David. Because during this time, David, he was anointed as king, but he wasn't king yet. Right? At this point, he's fleeing from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, and he's fleeing with this group, this group of men that is supporting him as king. And as he's fleeing, he stops and he feeds these people that are following him. He feeds these people that uh, believe he really is the king and that are supporting him. And by doing so, uh, he technically, you know, technically the bread that he gives them is meant for priests only. But even though he gives this bread to them, his heart as the king is one for his followers, one for those who support him as king. And by recounting this story, Jesus is saying, look, I'm like David, okay? I am, like, I am the anointed king of Israel. I'm coming to establish a new kingdom. I'm bringing new rules. I'm tearing down the old ways, and I'm in charge now. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm, I'm on my way to establish a new kingdom, and I'm Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming his authority here, bringing back his authority uh, to rule, to establish rules. Uh, and this, this did not sit well with the Pharisees. because their, their whole lives are governed by this tradition that they've built up. Right? Their identity, uh, their, their comfort, their hope, it's all found in all of these rules and these regulations that they have established as means to their own righteousness, as ways to gain their own righteousness. And Jesus, he's tearing all this down, and this angers them. Because uh, this is everything to them. 
But Jesus comes in and he says, that's over now, I'm in charge. And so that infuriated the Pharisees, it ticked them off. And I think at times it can tick us off too when Jesus comes into our life and he says, look, I'm in charge now. Everything that you have, everything that you find your hope in is now under my lordship. I determine your identity now. I determine what, what uh, leads you in life, what you care about. And so this can challenge us, but I think it also, once again, I think it encourages us when we see what kind of Lord Jesus is. So he, come, he comes into our life, he takes everything over, and this would be terrible if he's a bad Lord. This is actually great because he's a perfect Lord. Right? The Lord that we're under now actually brings us joy. And he leads us, leads us in his righteousness. So when we look at what kind of Lord Jesus is, we're encouraged. Our hearts are encouraged. And we see this, we see this in the story, particularly with the man with the withered hand that he heals. Uh, Jesus asked them a question, is it lawful to do, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy life? And when he asks this question, he pierces the heart of the Pharisees' pride. He goes straight to their heart because, once again, they've twisted the law in such a way that now it's actually harmful to do good on the Sabbath in their eyes. They've twisted it to where they see this man in need, this man with a withered hand, and they actually reject healing him, right? They reject doing good to him because they've built up all these traditions to build themselves up, to establish their own righteousness. So that they withhold healing from this man, or they think it's lawful to withhold healing from this man, and Jesus challenges that. Jesus, being the authority on the law now, says this is what the law actually means. The heart of the law is loving God. It's loving other people. This is what the law means. It's not, it's not a way to build ourselves up. It's a way to love others, to seek them out. So we see Jesus keep the law here. We see him as the authority of the law, keeping the law and, and healing this man and doing good to this man. He saves life instead of destroying life, as he says here in the text. So we see him doing it here, and ultimately we see Jesus doing this on the cross. We see Jesus fulfilling the law perfectly by saving life instead of destroying life. Because in the end, the Pharisees, they're the one who break the law, right? They're the one who sentenced Jesus to death, and they actually destroy life. They do harm instead of keeping the law. But Jesus, he fulfills the law perfectly by sacrificing himself for us, and in doing so, he does good. He, he loves us perfectly. He sacrifices himself for us in accordance with the will of the Father. He honors God, and he loves us by redeeming us, by saving our life, and dying on the cross. And so this is the Lord that we serve. This is the Lord that is over our lives now. We have a Lord who lays down his life for us, who gives everything for us. And so this should be encouraging to us. We have a Lord that gives his righteousness to us, where we don't have to obey the law and attempt to earn our righteousness. Now we are found righteous in Christ. He has given his righteousness to us. And now Jesus looks at all of our attempts to prove ourselves. He looks at all of our attempts to self-justify, right, to have this relationship that will finally make me happy, or, or have this job that will finally make me happy, or have this friend group, or what, you know, whatever. Jesus looks at that, and he says, no, I'm Lord over your life now. You're looking at these things for your worth. Uh, you're looking at these things for your identity and your comfort. Say, don't look at those anymore. Look at me. Right, these old ways are gone. Jesus comes in, he says, you know, I determine your worth now, and I've made you infinitely worthy. I determine your acceptance now, and you're welcome at my table forever. Jesus, he uproots our life 
and he uproots it for the better, for the best. He says, I determine your holiness. I've made you perfectly clean. And so now all of our, all of our means to self-justify, they're gone. Right? Those are the old ways. Now we simply we celebrate Jesus. Because Jesus, he, as our Lord, he's brought us in. Right? Sinners and tax collectors, he has brought us in to glorify him, to enjoy being in his presence with each other. And he's brought us in, and he's now Lord of our life. So let's rejoice in that. Let's continually praise him for this good that he has done for us. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, uh, we just praise you. We just thank you, Jesus, for coming into our lives. We thank you for fulfilling the law perfectly on our behalf um, and just freeing us to enjoy you, freeing us to glorify you, uh, to fellowship with you and feast with you. Uh, I just pray that you continually uh, lead us in these new ways. Um, Lead us in the way of of grace um, and of mercy to each other, of glorying and and your love for us. And we just praise you, God. Thank you for the love that you have for us. In your name I pray, amen.